Welcome to episode 55 of the Bridge Roll Podcast with White House fellow Adam Dole. The Rich Roll Podcast. Empathize like a doctor, design like an entrepreneur. That's the theme of today's show. Uh, what show is this? It's the Rich Roll Podcast. I'm Rich Roll. Uh, yes, the theme of today's show. Also, the title of an article written by today's guest, an article that is up on Fast Company uh, Magazine, um, who is today's guest. Well, his name is Adam Dole. Uh, he's a guy I did not know anything about before he was introduced to me on Twitter, and I'm glad that I took the opportunity to go and meet this guy and sit down with him because he has a powerful message and he's a very interesting guy. Currently, he is in residence at the White House as part of the Presidential Innovation Fellowship Program. And that's a very um, prestigious program in which the White House recruits the best and the brightest minds in the private sector, entrepreneurship, academia, and nonprofit, and pairs them with top innovators in government. And they collaborate over, essentially, in Adam's case, a 12-month period, this like tour of duty experience where they develop solutions to save lives, fuel job creation, and uh, save taxpayer money. And Adam is sort of there with the purpose of taking a look at healthcare. What's broken about it? Why is it broken? What can we do to solve these problems and improve the consumer experience where the consumer can have greater control over not just their medical records, but the trajectory of their treatment and how they manage and uh, exercise domain and personal responsibility over their own health care, their health, their fitness, their diet, and all these things. So it was really interesting. Uh, Adam's a guy who kind of cut his teeth at NASA. Uh, he came out of college with a communications degree and sort of a, a bent and an interest in sociology and human behavior and how how you can sort of take a look at those things from a scientific point of view and come up with solutions to historical problems. And we talk about NASA, we talk about space travel, we talk about Mars travel, we talk about all kinds of cool science stuff and then lead into kind of the healthcare discussion. What exactly is wrong with our system? What's broken about it? How can we fix it? And Adam is uh, very frank. He's also very charismatic and dynamic in his responses. And I think that uh, you'll find this interview really, really interesting. Uh, not just the things that he's doing at the White House, what he's done at the Mayo Clinic, what he's done in Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur. So really what he is, is an entrepreneur who, rather than attempting to disrupt government or healthcare from the outside recognizes the need and the importance of collaborating in partnership with the industries and the governmental programs that they are trying to improve. So um, it's cool. I mean, you know, the idea that you could sit down with somebody who's working in the White House on these big problems that affect all of our lives and he's working on the problem from a very high level is, uh, is a pretty cool treat. And he's just as excited. He's like a kid in the candy store, the fact that he has this opportunity. And uh, it was really fun to sit down and talk to him. So I'm dispensing with all this uh, introductory stuff. Been getting some complaints from you guys about being too long-winded and blah, blah, blah. So uh, if you want to support the show, just check out the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. You can click that, get whatever you're going to get on Amazon. Doesn't cost you anything extra and helps us out. Other than that, you want to know anything about me, what we're doing here, go to richroll.com. 
and you can find out more. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. 
And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Without further ado, uh, please enjoy my conversation with White House Innovation Fellow, Adam Dole. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, to have you here. Appreciate I know. It. We only talked for a couple minutes beforehand, but I already feel like we covered ground where I was thinking, I wish I was recording that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. Like, this is the beauty of Twitter because I was coming to DC and a Twitter follower of mine just said, oh, you got to meet my, my buddy, Adam Dole. He's great. He'd make a great uh, guest for the podcast. And I get tweets like that from time to time. And I just kind of, I have a, like a folder where I put that stuff for future reference and Sometimes I look into it, sometimes I don't, but I, I just, in the moment I just clicked on your thing and I was like, oh, this guy's got some cool stuff going on. He's a pretty interesting guy. Like, I, I think I'm going to make some time to go check this guy out. And I've been running around DC the last couple of days and usually I'll take the time to prepare a little bit better. But uh, basically, I just looked into you a little bit, and now we're sitting here. So is uh, <laughs> slightly unprepared. It. So you're gonna have to. We're, I'm gonna have to work a little bit harder. But I, I want to hear your story, man, because you're doing some amazing things. Oh well, I, I love how Twitter connects people like that. It's incredible, man. I've met so many amazing people. That way. I've never had a bad experience. You know, it's I've just been able to connect with so many amazing people, and then the podcast just gives me an excuse to come over and sit down and talk to you know people that I would like to meet, but probably otherwise wouldn't have an excuse to, Hey, can I come over to your house and sit down with you for two hours and <laughs> find out what you're all about? Well, and this is amazing for me. Cause I saw you were coming to DC. I was like, Oh, I'll get a chance to go see rich talk. Maybe get a chance to have him sign the book. And uh -huh. now you're sitting here in the, uh, in right. the living room. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Here we are, man. We're going to do the podcast. So, uh, we're in DC. You're here for a one year. Uh, what is it called exactly? Presidential, uh, fellowship at that's, the white house. That's right. I'm a, I'm a presidential innovation fellow. Uh, it's a one-year program. Um, we are 
hired in by the White House and then put on different government projects that could use um, some entrepreneurial horsepower. Right. So basically interjecting uh, a little of that entrepreneurial disruptive spirit into the bureaucracy of the federal government, right? That's right. Two things that you don't usually put in the same yeah. sense. Those worlds don't always... Uh, it's going to be interesting as we get into this because those those worlds are are you know distinct in certain respects and kind of need each other though. Absolutely, and it's interesting timing coming on the the uh, Tuesday decision for a government shutdown. I right, think those two things uh, haven't haven't necessarily found found the way to to, to help each other yet. Um, so we're at the mercy of what happens uh, with Congress. I know it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, you know, just being in D.C., that's all anyone's talking about. So you know, are we going to are, gonna be, are we going to work next week or are we not? You know? and, and it's really sad because I think one of the uh, highest honors is to be able to serve your country. And, you know, a bunch of us came here. Um, we put other things on hold and, mm. uh, and then we're, you know, faced with the realities of a lot of, uh, a lot of really talented government folks are going to be uh, sitting on the sidelines. Right. Well, I would imagine that, you know, if there is a shutdown, it's not going to go for more than a couple of days at most. There's no way. That's my hope. Politically, that Absolutely. it could be sustainable beyond that. But yeah. But uh, all right, so so let's get into like how you got to this place and what you're doing here. So you you have a really kind of um, circuitous path that could not have been predicted on paper. I mean, just looking at your various experiences, the idea that it would have led you to you know working in the White House right now is not something that I would have imagined you would have predicted. <laughs> it was nowhere on my radar. <laughs> uh huh. So, so you've uh, essentially, I mean, what would you call yourself? An entrepreneur, a designer, a technologist? I would say a bit of all those things. Um, the, the one thing that served me well is probably not being an expert in any one area. Um, I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of experience working across a lot of uh, sectors and a lot of different um, verticals that um, have served me well. And I think being um, a newbie to healthcare has actually been one of my biggest assets. Because you're not, your head isn't full with all these old ideas of what you can't do. That's right. Yeah, I, I look at a lot of my skill set as really being able to shine a light on the opportunities that other people have either been afraid to point out or just haven't been able to see because mm -hmm. um, they're too entrenched in existing business models or in existing ways of, of thinking. Right, and I think um, I read the one article that I, th I believe you co-wrote for Fast Company because um, there's this idea like I'm going to be the Elon Musk of, of healthcare and I'm just going to disrupt it from the outside and do my own thing. And I'm going to show them, you know, the right way to do it. And there's certainly, uh, you know, something to be said for that, but you're also dealing with a bureaucracy that is so massive that that's not quite possible unless you are like a Trojan horse going into the system and trying to work with it and maybe disrupt it, but also find enough common ground where you guys can collaborate and work together to create real change as opposed to just, just your motivation being, I'm going to disrupt this and show them. That's exactly right. And I think uh, my approach coming into the healthcare system was to join one of the most influential uh, healthcare providers in, in the world. And that was the Mayo Clinic. And my whole goal was to figure out how I could co-create something that would disrupt their exi existing business model um, with their support. And I think that that idea to be able to co-create with the, uh, the existing structure that is in place was something that a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley weren't necessarily doing. They were trying to go around the system because mm -hmm. there's less regulation and less uh, barriers. And I saw the big opportunity to really partner with, with healthcare um, to be able to make the biggest change and disrupt it from the inside out. 
Right. All right. Well, let's let's backtrack a little bit. So you're this uh, kid growing up in New Jersey, lacrosse player, Lawrenceville Academy, Syracuse. You play lacrosse at Syracuse, so you're playing lacrosse at a very high level. Yeah. Yep. And what what was the career plan at the time, or just like I'm just being an NC2A champion? Was that what was the? (laughs) I hadn't given uh, given the career plan a whole lot of thought um, coming into Syracuse, but playing at that high level and really being tested on all fronts, both athletically and intellectually, just being able to juggle both was was a challenge for me. And I think um, when I finally realized that there was more to life than lacrosse, uh, a big weight was lifted off of my shoulders because uh, there wasn't really a career path in lacrosse. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that would have been something that would have ever fulfilled me. I've always been somebody who needs to make an impact on the world. And I didn't see lacrosse as a vehicle to do that. Um, but surprisingly, um, I ended up really focusing on what my undergrad major was, which was a science in the way that people communicate with one another and understanding human behavior and what makes people tick. And that's what really got me excited. Um, I, I really had you know, uh, a big interest from the time I was really young, though, to become an astronaut. And that was something that uh-huh. I think was not unique to me. Most of my you know, kids, most of my friends growing up probably had the same uh, vision of one day being able to go into space. But I kind of took that one step further and really applied my, uh, my thinking and, and s- school um, degree to understanding how astronauts could actually uh, communicate under stressful situations and actually perform uh, um, at their optimal level and ended up getting a job at NASA right out of undergrad to be able to do that. And yeah, that's insane. It's crazy. It's like, you know, a little kid in a candy store, you know, <laughs> like what an awesome job. Like, how does that happen? How did you get, how did you convince NASA to hire you? So there's a good story behind this one. Um, I walked into the career counselor at Syracuse and told them of my dream of being an astronaut. And I basically got laughed out of the room. They mm-hmm. said, you're an athlete, your GPA isn't anywhere where it needs to be, you're not an engineer, you don't know math, you don't have a chance. I got a call about six months later from the same career advisor at Syracuse telling me that NASA was coming to town and that they were going to be doing some recruiting and that I was more than happy to go to the event, but that there would be no guarantee that they'd even talk to me. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, um, I went to the event and every single one of the recruiters stood up and they said who their kind of prototype uh, or you know, who, who they wanted to, uh, to uh, recruit and what their model was for that. And it was everything from a, a financier to mathematician to an engineer. I couldn't be any further away in terms of the qualitative mm-hmm. skills that I was developing in my communications degree. And so I thought to myself, I could walk out of this room right now, probably go have a great time with some friends. Or I could walk up to every single one of these recruiters, tell them what my story is, tell them what I'm interested in doing, and maybe they might know somebody. And sure enough, I walked down the line and pretty much was told, "Ah, we're not here to recruit for that. We don't even really know anybody. And I was starting Mm -hmm. to lose um, some of my momentum. And I finally got to the last person. And it was about after 35, 40 of these conversations that didn't last very long. And the, the lady's eyes lit up when I told her what I wanted to do. And she's like, you know, that's interesting because I'm here recruiting for a colleague, but my lab at NASA Ames does exactly what you just wanted to uh, wow. to do. And she ended up becoming my first boss. That's crazy. I mean, it's funny too, because you think uh, it's very easy to make fun of a, a communications degree. It's sort of like, that's the athletes. Uh, that's that's right. what all the athletes say. He's like, oh, we'll groom you to be a sportscaster or something like that. And it's kind of like, well, that's the easy path. But 
you actually took it to heart and you were like, oh, I, I really like, I'm really interested in this, you know, and what I can pursue with this unique little niche. That's right. I think I've always had the ability to get passionate about something and kind of figure out a way to make an opportunity out of what my passion was. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that my passion was in understanding what makes people tick. And it just so happened that NASA had a need for people who could understand that and, uh, and work in a lab to, to better understand the needs of the astronauts. Right. That's so cool. So, so you go off to Moffett Field. Is that the NASA, the, the NASA offices there? Yep. Moved out to the Bay Area, started working at Moffett Field um, with full intention of becoming an astronaut. This was like my Trojan horse to eventually oh, right. become an astronaut. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Once you're in, then you're, yeah, okay. And again, my, you know, I think being naive to all this w- was to my benefit because I, I really thought that this would be a good career path for me. Um, very quickly, I realized that uh, it, it's more glamorous in the movies than uh, than in real life. And we got a chance to work with a lot of the astronauts and it's just a tough lifestyle for them. And we, uh, we did a lot of academic studies in a lab where we brought astronauts in and put them under extreme conditions for a period of time and, and really understood their team dynamics and developed some technology uh, and some interventions that could help predict and uh, and intervene at the right time when communication breakdowns were happening. And this is all in service of the long duration space flight mission to Mars so that um, under those conditions, they would have the right tools to, uh, to not only survive, but um, to uh, enhance their performance. Uh-huh. So when you say extreme conditions, what does that what does that mean? Like what what kind of experiments were we talking about beyond the academic ones? So long periods of isolation um, with oftentimes a, a lack of ability to communicate face to face and trying to solve very complex problems under the under very time constrained uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And so we had this kind of four day game, if you will, that they would play, and we would be measuring a lot of biometrics and understanding and really coding and making correlations between what was happening in the game and what was happening in their body, and then looking at the output of their performance as a team. I see, interesting. I think I read, was it Wired Magazine? Somewhere, it was a while ago. Maybe I'm getting off track, but maybe it was a, I think it was in reference to the, to planning the Mars mission, or it might've been a space station mission, but where they built like a mock model and they were putting astronauts in there for long periods of time to see how they would behave under that kind of isolated experience. Yep. It's very uh, likely that that was part of the lab that I was in. Right. And it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what did you, I mean, what were the conclusions that you were making? I mean, are these people, these astronauts able to withstand more stress than the average human being? Or where were the breakdowns occurring? Like, what were you learning? Well, the, the one big aha for us was that if, up until that time, a lot of the, uh, the decisions to decide who was fine with who were really dictated on uh, the wrong things. And we developed uh, some, uh, some tests that would really um, understand people's qualitative nature um, rather than just what they what their resume showed in terms of who should be fine with who, um, mm-hmm. rather than it being a political decision or or based on other metrics, uh, people's personalities hadn't really been cataloged in the way that they needed to be. So mm-hmm. we came up with uh, some interventions, some training modules, and then some biosuit technology that that just brought it all together. Mm-hmm. And are the physical tests anything similar to what you see when you watch the right stuff or Apollo thirteen? You see these crazy, you know, these crazy G force tests, and they're they're doing and they're getting injected with things. And I mean, is that, is it, that, is that accurate? I mean, you said it's not like the movies, but. A lot of the training isn't too far from that because they really do have to practice 
what it's like being under the, the physical extremes and, mm-hmm. and being in a weightless environment. Um, they can lose a lot of valuable time uh, if their bodies aren't reacting properly once they actually get up there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of that training stuff actually did did happen. Interesting. Yeah. And are these guys like freaks of nature? I mean, they're like geniuses, right? But they're also incredibly physically strong. And I mean, how do they how do they actually find the the guys that they're going to put up? The uh, the application process is very extensive. Um, these are some of the most talented individuals um, that I'd ever met. I mean, they command a presence when they walk into a room. Some of the, you know very talented physicians, very talented uh, scientists, um, some school teachers. Uh, they, these are just leaders upon leaders, and mm-hmm. I think the uh, the skill set to be a leader was definitely high on the the criteria. Mm-hmm. And in reference to to planning a Mars mission, my understanding is that they haven't figured out the radiation part of it, right? Like, how are you going to transport a human that far with that kind of exposure for that period of time? I mean, how does how are they looking into resolving that? That is a great question. Um, I, I think that there's still a lot of risks um, that are unknown um, right now about what happens to the human body. And I, and I think right now there's a couple of private companies out there that are starting to take applications for the first manned mission, which probably won't be through NASA, mm-hmm. uh, with the ironic thing about all this. Um, are you talking about like SpaceX? and Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Mars One. And these are one-way trips right now. Right. And I mean, it's amazing that somebody would sign up Thousands for a one-way trip. I mean, you're that's it. You're on Mars. Knock yourself out. Thousands of people have already submitted applications online. I mean, do they have a death wish? Like, what is the? I mean, you're you're the psychology expert. What is going on with that? <laughs> that is a great question. I think it's you know there is an aspect of being part of something that's bigger than you know any one person, and, and obviously bigger than anything on our Earth. Um, right. That is a, a draw to many people. I think the realities will set in um, if any one of those folks get uh, get selected and, and actually have to go through some. Yeah, the sexiness of saying I signed up versus the reality of doing it. I mean, if you had terminal cancer or something like that, that would be one thing. But if you're in that situation, you're probably not going to be one of the people that's going to get to go anyway, that's right. right? You know. And I don't know enough about what they're actually planning to be able to know whether or not these people would ever have an actual impact on the long term. Um, uh, effect of, of actually having a colony on Mars. I think um, if it was pretty clearly defined that you would have a role that would impact, I think it could actually be a really compelling value proposition for a lot of people. But at this point, I think it's a science experiment. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many years off do you think it, that that reality is? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I would have said fifty year, you know, fifty years plus. But now, when we have people like Elon Musk and and others that are really, I think, uh, taking a new approach to this. I think within, you know, within 10 years, we'll have... 10 years, that's soon, wow. Yeah, I mean, this is my own thought and perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Right? But I think with the rate of, of exponential technologies and the growth there, um, just to see where things have gone in the last 10 years, it's, it's not uh, crazy to imagine that in 10 years we could probably have something on Mars. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching Elon's uh, YouTube videos, the videos of the the little launches that he's doing. It's just amazing. That you know, guy is see, I mean, the, it, it is crazy. It's crazy, you know, when he what he's doing. It's like Tesla is just his side project. You mm-hmm. know, it's all about SpaceX. And, and uh, what's the module? What does he call the module that goes up and comes back down? You know what it's called? I, I, don't know I forget what it's called. But uh, yeah, to watch it like sort of blast off and then hover and then land exactly where it took off and just so beautiful and graceful. And 
it's it's quite extraordinary that he's doing that essentially on his own. That's right. You and know? he doesn't have a lot of support. I think uh, a lot of people see what he's doing is crazy. And, and he's finally, I think, for the first time demonstrating that his ideas actually have a place in the world mm-hmm. that impact real world outcomes and yeah. quality of life, whether it's, you know, through Tesla or um, solar, you know, solar companies, that sort of thing. I think we need more big thinkers like that. We really do. I mean, he's, you know, for lack of a better comparison, he's really the new Steve Jobs, in my opinion. I mean, he, he, what he's doing right now is so remarkable. He's a rock star. I've, <laughs> have you driven a Tesla yet? I have not. I have not sat in one. <laughs> I, uh, I drove, a friend of mine got one recently, and he, he came over so I could test drive it. And I'm not like a huge car guy. I drive a crappy car, you know, I'm not like, I mean, I appreciate a nice car, but I'm not like, you know, the guy who's, you know, foaming at the mouth over fancy cars all the time. Right. And uh, he's like, trust me, just drive this car. And I, I've never had a better driving experience in my life. I was amazed by this car. Well, and just with the recent safety stuff that came out, I think it's the safest car. Safest car ever made. It has like more storage space than an SUV. Because there's, you know, you have a trunk in the front and the back. Super safe, and uh, and just the technology of it. I mean, when you, ex- it's super, it's quiet. Obviously, for people who've never, who 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 don't know what we're talking about, Elon Musk has a company called Tesla Motors, and he's disrupting the audio, the auto industry, and he has this fully 100% electric car that's essentially like one of the fastest cars on the road, and less expensive than those fancy sports cars perfectly engineered it, it it's essentially five stars in every category that's right it's like a perfect car and you drive it and you accelerate and it just goes faster and faster and faster and you're like oh yeah it doesn't have to shift gears mm-hmm. there's no so motor <laughs> there's no and there's no piston engine here there's no transmission you know and and uh and the whole console is just one giant flat screen and uh and they can push software updates to it. So the car just gets, continues to get better as they figure things out. Like I, uh, my friend was telling me, there's all these forums and uh, one of the things that was kind of coming up with people is they want to plug it in in the middle of the night because the electricity's cheaper than when you charge it during the day. But people were waking up in the middle of the night or waiting until right before they go to bed to plug it in. And uh, couldn't there be a better way? So they created a software update with a little timer on it that you plug it in when you get home, but it doesn't actually start to charge until a preset time that you can designate so that you're not spending too much on your electricity. Like a simple thing like that. Like, and they just push it to the car and it automatically is there. So your car just gets better. I love that. Isn't and that the amazing? range is 300 miles. I, I mean, know. Most people uh, don't drive 300 miles ever. I know. In one time. I know. It's, 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 it's crazy awesome. So I can't wait to, oh, and the other thing was my friend, when he went to go pick his car up, Elon Musk was there. So he had him sign it. So it's like his, sig- he signed the car like on the, on the um, visor, you know, <laughs> he has his car autographed by the maker, which is, I mean, how many people would be interested in something like that? I mean, the cult around that guy is remarkable. He's really putting his money where his mouth is. And uh, with the Hyperloop idea coming out, um, mm-hmm. you know, San Francisco to LA in 30 some minutes. I know. I think, it's insane. Yeah. If it was anyone else, you'd just say crackpot. But with him, you're like, well, all right, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we could talk about that. I mean, yeah. what it would entail to actually do that is something else. But if you know, I mean, there's nobody thinking bigger than that guy right now and executing at the same time. Yeah, he's, I think, scaring a lot of the airline industry right now with some of those ideas. Yeah, well, good. Yeah, you know what I mean? 
Um, so, all right. So back to Moffett Field astronauts. <laughs> so I have to ask you this one question. So for people that don't know, Moffett Field is a base that's, it's pretty proximate to Stanford where I went to college and they have a gigantic blimp hanger on the premises that's enormous. You can see it from the highway when you're driving by. And the sort of uh, urban myth, urban legend when I was in school was that it's so tall, that, that hangar, that it actually precipitates in there. It gets like cloud formations and starts <laughs> raining. That was, is that true? Does that happen? I wish I knew the answer to that. Unfortunately, <laughs> it got taken down. You're the one guy who I could ask this question to. <laughs> it, oh, it's taken down now? It's, it's not there? I guess it was asbestos filled after oh, no. the number of years. And so just recently, I think in the last couple of years, they had to uh, dismantle it. And uh, right now it's either completely flat or it, all the panels are taken off of it. So if you drove by, you wouldn't see it. Oh, that's a shame. It's like a historic it's landmark. Iconic, yeah. I know, exactly. Yeah. So, all right, so how long were you at NASA? Uh, about three years. Uh-huh. And very quickly realized that I was, A, no longer interested in becoming an astronaut. So, all right, yeah, so this, the Trojan horse experiment is failing? It, it was it was failing. I think I, I started seeing uh, the realities of, of what life as an astronaut would have been like. Um, and uh, I, I started seeing a lot of the value in the work that we were doing, uh, not necessarily in the technology that we were building, but in the process that we were going through to identify people's unmet needs. Mm -hmm. And we were a team of, of multidisciplinary uh, specialists. So we had physicians on the team, we had engineers, we had psychologists, I was a lab rat. And we all worked together and came to, uh, to the problems with our own different perspectives and, and lens. And I really enjoyed that process. And I call that process the need finding process. Mm -hmm. Working with a target market, understanding what the unmet needs are, which are oftentimes latent or uh, unstated. Uh, you could ask somebody what they need or what they want, and they could tell you what they think they want, but they don't necessarily understand what the right solution is. Mm -hmm. And so the process that we were going through, while they didn't really call it need finding, I was really excited um, by the process of working with a cross-disciplinary team, discovering what people's unmet needs are, and then developing solutions to fit those needs. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized that um, we should be using this process to disrupt industries or to impact industries, I should say, that have a larger target market than just, say, 50 or 75 astronauts. Right, right, right. So you could, instead of saying... I know. Let's find. We need to find out what happens when we starve and dehydrate these guys and put them at five Gs. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. There's only a couple people that will have to experience that and need a solution to that problem. That's right. And you know, from a basic research or applied research um, perspective, those insights and, and learnings are hugely valuable. And NASA is doing incredible work, and I have a lot of respect for the teams there and to, that continue to work on a lot of these issues. Um, but I, I really wanted to be able to see. Uh, uh, the output in the world and have consumers and, and people uh, touch the, the products and services and, and have their lives be impacted by mm -hmm. them. And that wasn't something that I would have been able to do at NASA. Right. So, so when you're starting to look around then, what's, what's next? I came upon, so I started talking with a lot of people, uh, product design companies, service design companies, uh, companies that were helping large organizations think differently about their problems. Um, this was in 2005, uh, uh, about 2007, I would say. And um, this is before uh, a lot of the, the healthcare crisis became top of mind. And so I looked at a lot of the issues that were going on, and there weren't necessarily uh, any one that spoke to me. Um, but I ended up uh, discovering this one company in San Mateo, just up the road from where you went to school. 
And they, it was called Jump Associates. And Jump did exactly that. They worked with uh, usually large five, Fortune 500 companies to really uncover opportunities for growth. And this could have been in the automobile industry, this could have been in the financial sector, could be anywhere. And we would apply this human-centered design approach to under, understanding what people need and what the unmet needs were, and then de, you know, really designing um, a strategy and prototypes to, mm-hmm. uh, to fulfill that. And it was an amazing experience. Um, uh, we would... So I started working there and we literally would just go and, and hang out with our target market. We were working with a big car company and they wanted to understand what was beyond the SUV. <clears throat> you know, they were selling a lot of SUVs today, but as the new generation started coming up through through college, they, they thought that that could be a trend that was going to be declining. So I had got a chance to spend a week or two out in the field, you know, with some of the, the people in my own generation, um, trying to take it a really objective uh, view at mm-hmm. what their unmet needs were around, really the third place, and that's what we we ca- called the uh, the opportunity space. They had home, they had school, and they really needed this third place to conduct their activities. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just one example of uh, one of the projects. So but, what did that? So what did that translate to? It ended up translating into a series, a roadmap that transferred kind of the existing SUV into something much more economical, much more streamlined, something that um, could be more affordable and uh, a little bit more um, adaptable. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of our big thing was how do we actually make a car that could transform itself? So we came up with a bunch of concepts around that. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, given the auto industry's tough, tough time over the last couple of years, we didn't necessarily see that car in the market. But mm-hmm. every once in a while, we would see a new car come out from that company and it had, would have one of the a features little, in it. That, yeah, a little dusting of Adam Dole that's right, <laughs> sprinkled yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the projects that really changed the trajectory for me was a project that we did for a big consumer package good company that was distributing milk. And when I got put on this project, I couldn't imagine a more boring project. I was like, oh, my God, I got to spend another four months uh, working on how to make milk cool. But what I wasn't thinking of at the time was the insight that we came up with, which was really around how do you actually empower families to take care of themselves and to live sustainable lives. And milk traditionally has played a very central part in that uh, part of the family conversation from kind of the old, you know, very mm-hmm. kind of tried and true ways of- The of, milkman dropping it off and he's your friend and all that. That's right. That. Mm-hmm. And really in, in uh, giving, you know, at the time, like the role that, mother, that uh, mothers played in their family had, you know, kind of this large, uh, large story around milk. And so- what ended up being a, a milk project turned out to be a health and wellness project for mm-hmm. us. And that's really what got my mind turning that we should really be using this process of human centered design to fix our healthcare crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, given that 75% of our uh, costs right now in our healthcare uh, industry could be prevented, and you right. know, heart disease and, and obesity are things that are really just driving up the cost and creating a lot of downstream effects on our healthcare system. I looked at this not as a healthcare crisis, but as a design crisis. We hadn't designed the right services to actually engage people in what was going to prevent them from getting sick 20, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. And so I saw this as, you know, kind of the light bulb went off for me. And this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing mm-hmm. and pitched it to the company. Um, they weren't as excited about the opportunity as right. I was. Um, and so well, there's also not one industry that would be the client for that, right? Like, how do you, it's so huge. Like, is it the government? Is it this 
particular producer of this unhealthy food? Is it doctors? Like who, who are you even addressing? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the big, uh, big concepts that have had legs are really when they can address all of the different stakeholders in that ecosystem and, and really have them work together in a new way that they hadn't before. And that was, you know, not necessarily in the, in the best interest of the company at the time. Um, I ended up, uh, going to grad school soon after that, um, because I really did want to focus on, on this. Um, and, and I didn't want to sit around, um, waiting, uh, for, for any company to necessarily get clients in this area. I thought oh, I could just start these projects on my own mm-hmm. and ended up doing a project, um, that got a little bit of recognition, won, won some awards, um, f- through an open innovation platform called Innocentive. Mm-hmm. And Innocentive is a crowdsourcing platform based in Boston that puts challenges out to the world, sponsored by organizations, and uh, sees what comes back and awards you know, the winner based on a set of criteria. And I ended up putting a business plan together that would outline an, a new way of this ecosystem working. And it actually uh, ended up winning. And I think so, more than and what what, what was it? <laughs> it? It was a pretty uh, tight ecosystem that would re- would reward people for healthy behaviors. Which I think now, in hindsight, looking back, as you know, probably pretty naive to think that uh, people could be incentivized by external rewards as much as that plan uh, put into place. But it really leveraged a lot of social accountability, um, putting people on teams with peer and peer coaches, which a lot of businesses of its time. Uh, whether it's Weight Watchers or others, have demonstrated to be quite effective and really aligning the incentives across the payer community, the provider community, so that um, you know doctors and nurses were actually getting paid to keep people out of the hospital and really wrapping that all up into, uh, into this utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and wait, what year was this when you were doing this? This was two, you know, the, kind of the end of <clears throat> 2007, 2008. So right on the on the. the uh, I think the time when a lot of other people started thinking about this problem. Right. I mean, in some respects, it's quite prescient because you look at the proliferation of, of all these mobile apps now that are all oriented around tracking your food and your calories and the Fitbit and the, all these all these tools. It's a mass. That's become a massive market sector, right? That's right. And I think the big difference, looking back on it now, is you know the people who are having success are people who are actually building stuff now rather than just creating the business plans. Mm-hmm. And so I, I looked at that as you know just more than anything, um, a bit of confidence that uh, this was an area that I, I should explore more, mm-hmm. and that um, you know grad school, a couple of years, getting an MBA from a design school um, might actually afford me the opportunity to uh, an to MBA work from a design school. Uh, yeah. How does that work? It, it couldn't have been any more perfect for me. So when you think Can about- Can you get a design degree from, from a business school? <laughs> it's surprising. <laughs> so there is a new trend right now in, in business programs to incorporate more of this human-centered design skill set. And really what the skill set is, is uh, an applied application to understanding um, what people's unmet needs are, and then going through a series of rapid prototyping uh, feedback loops to get to the right answer. And I think- you know, there's an assumption in traditional business schools that you can apply existing models to some of these problems and have different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. I think, you know, when when we talk to a lot of leaders um, at these companies that are trained in the traditional way of thinking about things, they're, they seem to be asking the wrong questions. And rather than trying to think of what the right answer is, I think the design thinking type of the MBA programs out there really teach you how to design something that will help you learn quicker. Mm-hmm. And 
the shorter those, those cycles are, the sooner you can actually get to something that it's actually providing value for real customers. And mm -hmm. that was really the skill set of this MBA program was to design businesses uh, that have sustainable business models mm -hmm. um, that leverage a lot of uh, traditional uh, elements of the MBA program, but then layer on this whole nother world of, uh, of what has made designers really successful in creating products and services that people use. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. In other words, it's sort of look taking a look for, I guess I'm trying to wrap my brain around this, but the idea would be because of technology, we have so many new tools that we've, we're just starting to understand the power of, right? And, and how they can be applied to traditional business models as opposed to taking traditional tools and applying them to find out solutions to problems they don't even know they have. That's exactly right. And when you look at some of the examples that exist in the world today, there is very, uh, it's very unlikely that Marriott could have ever come up with Airbnb, you know, as, as one mm -hmm. example. And when you look at, you know, how much market share Airbnb is taken away from the Marriott's of the world, a lot of the leadership at some of these traditional companies are probably sitting around scratching their heads being like, how do we get some we of these? We were already in this business. Why didn't we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Or, or looking at, you know, a, a company like Kodak with digital photography coming in and how could they have maybe, you know, adapted better to that or been more forward thinking so that they were prepared for that seismic shift. That's exactly right. I think Kodak's kind of the, the poster child for what the new type of MBA programs are trying to, to arm the, the future workforce against. And I think that, um, that, you know, a lot of the traditional MBA programs are unfortunately hampered by their brand and their alumni. And it's it's really hard to really re-architect an education from scratch. And so mm -hmm. some of these newer programs are actually having quite a lot of success and uh, demonstrating that there's some value out there to be had. Well, the whole notion of business is changing so rapidly. You know, it's not about getting a job at JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley anymore. It's not, a, it's not about feeding into that system. It's about looking at a completely different system and learning what's going on right now and its gestation level and being prepared for that. That's right. When you look at a lot of MBA students wanting to go work at startups, but there isn't really a whole lot of need for PowerPoints <clears throat> in startups. You mm -hmm. need to be able to build and, and uh, create value um, in a very tangible sense. And I think it's pushing some of the MBA programs to really set uh, their student population up to, to be more builders and doers rather than uh, just theoretical thinkers or creating models that um, basically, uh, I love the, the quote, I don't know if it's Mike Tyson, but everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And the <laughs> yeah. same can be said, as soon as you let your product out in the world, the first user is going to smash every hypothesis that you ever had about uh -huh. what your product would do, how much people will pay for it, how people will interact with it. And it's what you do with that feedback that really sets um, people apart um, right now. Right, the ability to adapt and change your business plan as users start to tell you what it is or what they want it to be or what's not working. That's right. You know, I mean, th didn't Twitter go through that? I mean, a 
originally it was intended for a kind of a different purpose, right? It was about uh, public transportation becoming more efficient or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And being able to listen to the market, whether it's qualitatively or quantitatively, um, understanding why people are doing what they're doing. I think these are all skill sets that traditionally really, you know, hadn't been valued or hadn't been explicitly valued until, um, mm-hmm. and, until the democracy of a lot of this technology has really shown its value. Mm-hmm. So you're doing this program, you're starting to think about healthcare. Yeah, it's a two-year program. I basically convinced every one of my team projects to focus on another one of the uh, aspects of healthcare that I seemed to, to think was broken and that we could fix. So out of the two years, I probably did a, a dozen or maybe even two dozen projects focused on different pieces of the healthcare system from uh, insurance to primary care. And this is all coming from somebody who's never worked in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. So I was taking this fresh mind approach and coming up with blue sky projects uh, with, with oftentimes a, a team of really talented individuals uh, that we worked together on this with and just saw all kinds of opportunity in this space. And it was soon after I graduated from the program that I, I got a call from somebody at the Mayo Clinic and asked me if I did any freelance work. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't, but I did then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, absolutely, let's talk. And what turned out to be a three-month uh, freelance project uh, turned into a tryout for a new ventures team that they were putting together. And it was a really good fit. They were looking for somebody to be based in Silicon Valley, which was perfect because uh, there's no way my wife and I were going to be moving to Minia- uh, well, Rochester, Minnesota, which right. Is if, if you know the area, which I know you're from, the mm-hmm. Minnesota area, Minnesota is great. Rochester, Minnesota is n- not near any one of the lakes mm-hmm. um, or anything like that. So it's, it's tough to convince somebody to move. But they wanted somebody to be based in Silicon Valley, and I was the right person for that. And so the role that I stepped into was a perfect fit for me. I was responsible for expanding the scope and impact that Mayo could have outside of their traditional business model of tertiary treatment. So traditionally, Mayo Clinic has been you know, the world's leader in the most complex conditions. Uh, when no one else can fix you, you fly to the Mayo That's Clinic. That's where you go. You go there, and they fix you, and they fly you home. And my- be- Just, uh, I mean, we've all heard of the Mayo Clinic, and like we all know it's the best, but I can't say that I know that much about it. Like, how many doctors are there? Like, how big is it, and- it's, How does it work? It's, so Mayo Clinic is a really unique institution. I think there's quite nothing, you know, nothing quite like it in, in the world. But there's uh, about a 55,000 uh, employee population spread across three sites. Um, Rochester, Minnesota is, is the home base. And so it's got the largest uh, number of people. I think about 35,000 people work there. I think in total, there's probably about 20, 15 or 20,000 doctors. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's a lot bigger than I thought. Mm-hmm. In fact, th- I, actually, there's probably fewer doctors than that, but supported by an army of, of really talented nurses um, and, uh, and, and other practitioners and, and administrators. And they've really developed and branded themselves around the team-based approach to care. And what would typically take weeks, if not months, to accomplish outside Mayo Clinic could be accomplished in a day or two. And what I mean by that is when you come to the Mayo Clinic, you are put in the center of the room and all of the specialists that um, that need to collaborate come to you and they it's, collaborate. It's like house. That's right. It's yep. like it's a, they actually <laughs> sit around and have the debate around the table. Like yep. you see in house. And very few organizations put the center, put the patient in the center of that conversation. Usually the, those conversations are happening in absence of the patient. And I think that the team-based to care, team-based approach to care is exactly what we need to do more of. And I think Mayo Clinic has really demonstrated that outcomes are better and even more cost-efficient uh, way of doing work. And so, 
you go because there, of this team approach. That's right, and it's just the efficiencies um, of being able to do um, work together collaboratively um, with the patient being a, a, an equal member of that team. Interesting, <clears throat> and it doesn't hurt that the doctors are probably all geniuses there too, right? It is amazing. It is some of the most talented people I've ever worked with. Um, specialty upon subspecialty, and domain expertise upon domain expertise. From you know the specialties that we all know about to things like behavior change. You know, they have behavior change experts that are looking at how to actually impact the uh, the outcomes from that perspective as well, which is really powerful. Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're an outsider looking in at the Mayo Clinic, let's say you're a hospital administrator and you're realizing how successful they are with this approach, why aren't you looking at your own hospital and saying, well, we should do that too. Like, why is, why doesn't that happen? I think, you know, it's starting to, um, I can't say that it's happening at the rate because change is really hard and it's hard to really shift the business model from paying for procedure to paying for performance or outcomes. And, you know, Cleveland clinic has followed in its footsteps. Kaiser has got a really unique model, uh, specifically on the West coast, um, being really big. And I think we're seeing more and more, uh, ecosystems like that approach um, the, the problems in the same way now, uh, especially with some of the ACOs, the accountable care organizations mm-hmm. are starting to get modeled after that approach. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, it would probably have something to do with the way doctors bill and how they get paid. Like, well, if I'm collaborating, you know, if there's five doctors sitting around a table, like who's getting paid and how are we working right. out the business aspect of mm-hmm. it. A lot changes when the incentives change. <laughs> right. And yeah. if there is one industry that needs to think long and hard about the incentives, I think it's healthcare. And I think groups like the Mayo Clinic have, have really demonstrated that, um, that there's the right way to do things. The challenge is when you try and scale that to the masses and look at the non-critical care situation. Mm-hmm. So when you look at chronic conditions and the primary care level, um, you know Mayo hasn't played a huge role there. And that was actually part of my responsibility was to start new businesses that could actually put Mayo Clinic on the map in people's communities, in people's pockets, um, to be able to ideally prevent people from ever needing to go to Mayo Clinic. Right. So, so let's take a step back. So the Mayo Clinic reaches out to you, come consult, freelance, and what is it that they're looking to do there? Like what, so what do you start working on? What are you looking at? So the, the guy, uh, Scott Ising, is the individual there that reached out to me, and he was part of the business development team. And he had been hearing a lot of trends uh, around mobile and gaming and really didn't understand uh, how they would impact Mayo's business. And rather than you know putting a lot of uh, resource internally on some of those opportunities, uh, he gave me a list of things um, that uh, that he wanted me to explore. And gaming was one of them. Now I'm the furthest thing from being a, a video gamer, mm-hmm. but I started seeing a lot of trends in business around gamification, and there's a lot of buzzwords around that. Um, but really understanding how do you actually design for engagement. And games have traditionally done a really good job at that. So I said, you know, this, you know, let's use that as the, the way for me to learn about this. Mm-hmm. So I basically told him, I was like, look, I'll explore, you know, what gaming could mean for Mayo Clinic. And spent three months t- taking a deep dive into the space of game mechanics, a term called self-efficacy, which are, um, it, it's tools that can put, um, put the power of success into the user's hands. So your capacity to feel like you could actually impact the outcome. Mm -hmm. And games do that very effectively. 
And um, I was able to basically make some connections to things that I knew Mayo Clinic would want to do and charted out a roadmap and a pathway for how games could actually become adjuncts of traditional therapies. So that if you're trying to engage somebody in a, in a therapy that uh, that required taking your medication, maybe there was some corollary experience that you could have in the game that would actually incentivize you and motivate you to want to do both. Right. So in other words, <clears throat> I mean, in the most simplistic terms, like you would get points when you take your medication on time or something like that. That's where you're, definitely one you're, example. You're, you're creating an emotional investment in this little journey. Exactly. That is that is one example. And we, we see now a lot of companies tr- trying to do that. Right. So So in other words, the application that you're looking at is the communication and behavior modification of the patients and the interaction between the patients and the doctors and the staff. That's right. As opposed to communication between the doctors and amongst the staff, because you read about and you see something else I want to talk about in a minute is, is how much technology, the iPad and all this, you know, everything that's now available is impacting medical education and the doctor. I mean, it's sort of like, the porn industry with video, mm-hmm. like the medical industry is just seems like it's has the most to gain with all of this incredible 3d modeling and all the kinds of ways that you can teach a surgeon how to operate without, you know, in, in new and different ways to, to help them master their craft. It's huge. And we haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah. I don't think we have things. either. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So you weren't really looking at that. You were looking at, um, the patient aspect of it. Oh, but one thing I did want to mention though, before I, because I'll forget, I did read an article. I can't remember where I read this, but it was about uh, IBM's uh, supercomputer Watson Mm -hmm. and how they're starting to uh, use Watson uh, in the hospitals to help diagnose patients and help doctors to figure out the appropriate protocol. Because I guess Watson, it can, you can just put so many variables into it. Um, from patient records and the history, like you can load all the medical journals ever written on a particular condition or whatever. And it has the ability in some kind of rudimentary AI way to evaluate all of this and come up with a treatment protocol that takes in so many more factors than the doctor might be aware of. Because I guess, for example, if you're diagnosed with a certain kind of cancer, there might be 20 kind of medications that would be appropriate to prescribe. Which ones do you choose to, to prescribe and which ones don't you and why and what amounts and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of subjective doctor judgment that goes into that. And it's not always based on all the information because nobody can know everything. And it's, it's helping these doctors sort of implement the, the appropriate protocols. Are, is that correct? Yeah, no, you know what I, I'm talking about? Yeah, you're, you're spot on there, I think. Um, so Watson is currently in medical school right now. So it's not doing a lot of that quite yet, but it's right. learning. They're how. talking, but this is like, this is the thing that's going to save IBM, right? It, it, it absolutely could could be the thing. And and I think there's no question that um, Watson will have an impact on, on healthcare and the way that medicine is practiced. I think um, Watson reads... Something I don't know. I'm going to get this figure wrong, but 200,000 pages in 30 seconds. Like <laughs> so there, there's no way that a human could ever learn uh, as quickly as Watson could. And so, and with an emphasis on this word "learn," like there is something about it where it actually it's adaptable. It is getting better and better every day that it's in school and sees more patients and and everything around it. Um, but it's not quite there yet, where I think it's really having a big impact. Um, I think it's going to there. There's mm-hmm. no question. And there's a bit of big controversy right now. A lot of people that are technology driven in healthcare, uh, big investors, Vinod Kosla, um, founder of Sun mm-hmm. Microsystems. He's now investing a ton into healthcare. He became 
really known for uh, a statement that he made at a conference that, you know, X percent of doctors are going to be out of a job because of technology. And that really set the industry off, I think. And I think, you know, that was taken out of context. And, and uh, I think it was well-intentioned to say, technology is going to impact the way that doctors practice medicine and the way that the industry works. And I think now when you talk to him about it and when you hear him talk about it, he's really of the mind that um, technology can really help scale great doctors. And Mm -hmm. that's really where I think the industry is going, which is how do we actually use this technology to scale what what individuals can't do on their own? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's never going to replace a human uh, in the operating room. It just might be a little bit more like Star Trek. Where yeah, Dr. Yeah. McCoy puts you in the bed and it reads all your <laughs> does on. <laughs> or uh, I don't know if it'll be like. Did you see Prometheus? I didn't. Know. Uh, so they're they're in this you know spaceship and uh, was it was it Prometheus? Which which one? Was? No, it was um, what was the one with Matt Damon where they uh, Elysium. Where they have these beds uh, in this utopian uh, sort of space station that was orbiting around Earth, you could you could lay in these beds and it would diagnose you with whatever was wrong with you and just immediately cure you without any doctor. So I don't know if we're going that far yet, but well, it's interesting. There is a competition out there for the tricorder, which is uh, right, Doctor McCoy's gadget. Yeah, and there's companies out there working on that right now. Just I mean, it's it's really uh, I think reinventing what the uh, diagnostic um, capability could be and putting that in the hands of parents and, and people um, mm-hmm. in their own home so that they're not so reliant, um, much like the ATM machine. Uh, you know, we don't go into banks. We're not reliant on the, the bank teller anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have imagined a future where you could walk up to a machine and have all your, uh, your banking done that way. And I think you know, there's something to be said for technology and healthcare moving more in that direction and putting the power into people's hands. And that's right. something that's uh, going to be happening. Right. I mean, it's going to be. I mean, back to the tricorder, it's like, well, we already have the communicator. It's actually better than the communicator in Star Trek. That's so right. It's all, it's it's insane. The actually. future is coming quickly. All right. So games <laughs> in the Mayo Clinic. So you're, 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 you're coming into the Mayo Clinic with this gaming idea. Yep. And so what's, what happens? So I started, uh, I, I came in um, pretty, pretty new. This was the first time that I ever worked inside of the, the belly of the beast of healthcare and very quickly was uh, confronted with all the reasons why some of these new things that I was trying to come up with wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that my job wasn't necessarily to come up with new ideas. My job was to bring others along with ideas that they could get behind um, that might not have been too new, but that really started pushing the boundaries of where Mayo Clinic had played before. Right. And whether it was remote technologies and looking at different telemedicine concepts um, or things at the primary care level that would really, you know, if, if they were effective, they would prevent people from ever needing to go to Mayo Clinic. And you could imagine how controversial some of those conversations were. Right. As but we need them to come to the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> we, we don't want to be too good at this, right? <laughs> And luckily, Mayo, I think, you know, they really live in, and breathe by the motto that the needs of the patient come first. And that inspired me to, uh, to really just try to come up with as many concepts as possible that would impact you know, quality of care, uh, healthcare outcomes, quality of life, and, and really, I think, not waver too much from my vision of preventing people from ever coming to Mayo Clinic. And ended up uh, hitting on one concept that seemed to garner a lot of attention and um, 
that was a, a concept that was really about putting a lot of the services that we delivered to our executives um, through an executive health program. So, you know, executives from Fortune 500 companies can come into Mayo Clinic and have this really comprehensive experience over two days where all of their healthcare needs are taken care of. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't that be delivered to everybody um, in, a, in a scalable way? So technology supported by real people. Mm-hmm. And we start working on this concept um, pretty early on, and it took us about a year of working with, uh, with Matt Johnson's company, uh, Go-Kart Labs. Mm-hmm. And we came up with a really interesting concept that we ended up getting outside investment for, spinning it out into its own company. And it's now off and running in Palo Alto, and it's called Better. Better, right. Yeah, I saw that in the, in the stuff that you sent me. And essentially, that is a mobile app, right? And uh, it, it basically gives the consumer greater control over all of your, not really your your medical, stati- your medical information, but kind of how you're tracking what you're doing, right? I just did a terrible job of explaining <laughs> it. You explain it. So better, the value proposition is really about... Um, bringing each individual um, through a mobile service um, and the initial touch point is on the phone. Uh, eventually it'll be anywhere uh, that, that a uh, user needs to interact with it. So whether it's web on, on uh, computers, whether it's on the TV screen, doesn't matter. Um, bringing a personalized healthcare experience to them at their fingertips. And personalized really means just that. I think the idea that personalized medicine is understanding you know, what people need at the right time, delivered by the right person, hasn't found its way to mass market yet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with understanding uh, an individual's risk profile. And so the first thing that Better is going to be doing is getting to know you and understanding what your risk profile is, and then start delivering you personalized experiences based off of that. The one use case that I love, um, because I think food is such an important part of uh, people's ability to take control over their own health, is once better is, is, is really doing its full job, it should be able to know that it's close, getting close to lunchtime. It knows that I need to be eating a low-sodium diet. It knows exactly where I am because I have a supercomputer in my pocket at all times now. And it's going to not only recommend me uh, some low-sodium options nearby, but it might even give me a coupon uh, to be able to go fulfill that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just giving people an action plan, but it's giving people an action plan that makes those behaviors become that are sustainable. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and I think the important part is going to be how better learns, um, just like in the same way Watson needs to learn for each individual person and what's working for them, what's not, and how to actually augment the experience based on the feedback loops. Right, interesting. So, so for example, I sign up for better, I get it on my phone, and then I enter a bunch of data points, like my height, my weight, my ethnicity, my age, my whatever. Like, what are all the things that it's evaluating in order to come up with these sort of determinations about what you should do? So some of those things are, are questions that aren't too creative. There are things on a general risk profile analysis that, uh, that Mayo's got mm-hmm. tried and true. Um, Do you have like, heart disease in your family? Yeah. That kind of stuff? Exactly. But some of the other things um, that we're playing around with are really some of the things that are not part of the clinical record today. Um, you know, how are your relationships? Um, how busy are you? What does your schedule look like? Um, the things that we know impact our daily lives more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And putting that stuff in the context of the health record, the future health record, is I think where we want to go. And really treating some of that data um, just as important as some of the other stuff mm-hmm. um, w- really hasn't happened yet. And so those are some of the questions that it'll be asking as well to really try and understand you. Almost as if you had a, uh, a buddy that was there to basically look after you. Um, right. 
I like the I like the recommendations part. Like if I'm driving around somewhere, it knows where I am, and it, at you know at lunchtime, it says here are the three places that you, Rich, the vegan guy, could potentially eat. You That's know, right. like especially I've been traveling around a lot, and I have to I, sometimes I got to plan ahead, or I don't know where I'm going. Like to be able to have that would actually I, would be really valuable to me. Absolutely, and this could be. Uh, used by just about anybody. It could be somebody who's managing a chronic condition, trying to prevent a chronic condition. If you've got an acute issue, uh, Better will actually put you through a uh, series of algorithms to help um, guide you to the right care. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that uh, Better is going to be doing um, that the healthcare system needs is breaking down the data silos. The data silos right now in healthcare are killing us. And what does the, that mean? Explain what that means. The idea that every health experience that I have right now is siloed into separate proprietary systems. So when I go to my primary care doctor, um, that data doesn't find its way into a specialist conversation mm-hmm. very easily. Uh, when I go to Whole Foods and have you know a health experience there around food that I'm buying, there is no way that that data would ever find its way into a clinical record. And the, the information from claims data and all this stuff exists in their own proprietary systems. And that's one thing that's really hurting our, our healthcare industry right now is the fact that none of these systems talk to each other. Right. And if Watson knew all that stuff, then Watson would be in a better position to advise. That's right. right? Absolutely. And I but think- then you're, I mean, it's getting, you're getting into tricky waters here. This is getting blasphemous because we have a lot of privacy issues and mm-hmm. how do you deal with all of that? Like that becomes... Rich, that's pretty much the, the big, huge question and the elephant yeah. in the room for all of these new services that are coming up. How do we actually know enough about you to provide you a meaningful experience without being big brother or creepy? Right. And, you know, now more than, than any other time, I think people well, are aware I got, of that. I got news for you. Big brother's already here and we're all willingly signing up for it. So. That's right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, or Orwell would not have uh, predicted just how enthusiastic we would be about having Big, big Brother watch everything that we do. But exactly, we're actually paying for it on purpose mm-hmm. and welcoming it into our lives. And it's it's I don't know where that's leading. You know, that's another whole podcast discussion, I suppose. But I think so. it's it's going to have to change though people's expectations around transparency and and uh, value in healthcare system. I think has has never been part of the, the conversation. And for the first time, I think if we can establish a sense of transparency, and that goes both ways, that's, you know, but, uh, transparency about us and also transparency about services so that we can match those two things more effectively, that, that's where we're going to start seeing some of the, uh, the value um, that can help drive a, a new, more consumer-driven healthcare. I think that's happening. And I think it's so, it's sociological and it's generational. You know, as somebody who is, understands psychology and communications and all of that. I mean, you really see it. I see it with my kids and I see it, the difference between them and for example, my parents. I mean, just using Facebook as an example, you have an older generation. They're not comfortable sharing stuff about their life in a public forum, even if only a couple people are looking at it. Whereas young people, they are completely uninhibited and, and uh, they just don't have the same perspective about privacy that people from a different generation do. And how that plays out, you know, across every spectrum of how we live our lives remains to be seen. <clears throat> but it's a reality and it's a truth, you know, like they just don't, they don't think about it in the same way. So in 20 years, when those are the people that are making decisions around this, how is that going to affect, you know, everything from Supreme Court decisions to medical records? That's right. 
Absolutely. We're sharing more and more, you know, each year there's, I think, Mm -hmm. Zuckerberg's law out there. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Well, and it brings up issues of sort of, you know, privacy by its very nature begs the question of like issues of shame and like, I don't want people to know that about me or I don't feel comfortable with, it's like issues of identity and all these kinds of things that I think are not constants, you know, and we're seeing different, uh, different priorities with respect to that with young people. Absolutely. So I see, you know, just the, the gestalt of technology now. I mean, I, I don't see any way around it actually happening at some point. Yep. You know? Agreed. So It's too pervasive. Yeah. Mar- <laughs> Marshall forward. Um, yeah, well, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, so basically you're talking about some repository of all this information, all your private medical information, your preferences, what you're eating, what you're buying, where you're going, and all of these things being used as a powerful tool to help improve your health. But that's, it is frightening, you know, that somebody could have access to that and find out everything that they need to know about you. But, you know, with what's going on with the NSA and it's like... It's a different world, man. It is. It is. Hopefully with, you know, Mayo Clinic behind this one and some really great investors, um, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed that this company will, uh, will become, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, uh, the examples um, that I think changes where things are right now for healthcare. So this is a little startup, but it's, it's being funded by Mayo Clinic and then... Mayo Clinic and the Social Capital Partnership, which is a venture fund in Palo Alto started by Chamath Palapatia. And he was the person at Facebook who was responsible for getting Facebook from 1 million users to 750 million. So if there's one Uh, person in the world that understands how to scale consumer products, it is Chamath. Wow. How did he do that? (laughs) He's a very talented, very visionary uh, product guy. I think he started out, um, you know, as an engineer and he just has a really Mm -hmm. keen sense for how to build technology that engages people. And um, we were lucky to have him as uh, chairman of the board of Better and you know, primary investor and uh, you know, great, uh, great CEO, co-founder, and Jeff Clapp, uh, who's got a long history in health technology, built and sold one of the largest remote patient monitoring companies in the world, which remotely monitored people in their own home uh, around chronic conditions. And he sees this as then even bigger opportunity to really engage people before they get sick. Mm-hmm. And it's not out yet, right? I, I went to the site and try and entered my email address, but it, it said I will alert you as to what's going on. So, is there? Do you guys have a launch date? So, given my new role um, here at the White House, I've stepped away from the, a lot of the day to day work there. But my latest understanding was sometime this winter, and mm-hmm. that could be vague in terms of I don't know if that's going to be November or January, February. Right. But and and how is it? Uh, I mean, is it similar to Wellness FX, where you have your blood values and all of that in there, and you can have those monitored as well? The company isn't quite um, taking those types of metrics, um, but I see Wellness FX as a potential great partner um, right. so to really provide that level. Yeah, they're of do, they're kind of doing the other side of that coin. Exactly, right? you they're have a more sp- behavioral one, and theirs is more sort of clinical. That's right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, cool, man. Well, it'll be exciting to see how that rolls out. I, I'm excited. Um, you know, it's, they're building a great team out there in Palo Alto, and. Um, yeah, I have high hopes for uh, the future of that company. Right. So, all right. So, you develop better at, at Mayo Clinic, and things are chugging along. And then, what happens? Uh, Barack Obama calls you up. Or <laughs> so, in a parallel track, uh, the the person who inspires me the most, my wife Kyoko, um, 
she decided to leave her career at Apple after about eight or nine years of working there. And she was a, she was a designer. She was a designer and then became a manager of a lot of the dot-com efforts on the marketing side. Mm -hmm. So apple.com was, was her baby for a number of years. And, and over the, 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 the years that she was there, I think she, uh, had a lot of great experiences and came home one day and you know told me that she wasn't you know feeling quite comfortable with the public speaking that she was then having to do as a manager and to make a long story short um, I convinced her to take an improv class and that has somehow matriculated into a new passion of hers <laughs> and one improv class led to a next. We were talking before the podcast. I said, oh, you what? She got in the groundlings? You know, it's like a joke in Hollywood. <laughs> and <You're> she, like, <laughs> fast forward now, you know, a year and change later, she's now full time in, in, uh, in acting down in Los Angeles. So we it's moved, fantastic. we relocated down to the, the Malibu area in Pacific Palisades and love it down there. And she's now doing acting, uh, uh, film and TV full time. And I couldn't be any more proud of, you know, seeing her really. How long ago did that start? That decision was probably about two and a half years ago. And, uh -huh. it, and it was propelled by this, um, you know, need that she had to just become more uh, proficient at, at leading teams. And I think it unlocked a dormant interest in her and a right. passion that she never knew she had. She's very uh, creative um, and passionate about anything that she gets involved with. And so this really followed suit. And, you know, I, you know, how unfortunate things happen to, to great people. Her sister unexpectedly passed away. And I think that mm. really shined a light on some of the opportunities that we had in front of us. And this just being one of the things that, you know, we looked at each other and we said, life is too short to go through life complacent. And that was the right time for her to leave Apple and to pursue something that was never on her radar, mm -hmm. but something that she clearly developed a, a passion and skill set for and had some early success getting you know, into the Screen Actors Guild Union and developing uh, some, uh, some opportunities down there that um, she's now thriving full time. Taking, That's you know, crazy. So she's already like booking gigs and working. She's working. She'd like to be working more. I mm. think the the uh, opportunities are uh, far and few between where they actually get you know translated into reoccurring roles. Right. But she's um, on the path to hopefully getting some of those reoccurring roles. She's now starting to get some of those bigger auditions. That's great. And so that happened. You know, about a, about a year ago, we made the transition down to Los Angeles, and um, right around that time. Um, I was going back and forth between Palo Alto. A friend of mine who was working at the White House emailed me and said, you know, there's this program. You should think about applying for it. It's a Presidential Innovation Fellow program. And I couldn't have even imagined going to work for government at the time. Government was nowhere on my radar. And um, I looked at the application and I thought, oh, maybe I'll just keep my, my, all my options open. My wife looked at me and she's like, but what if you get it? And I was like, oh, don't worry. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we'll ever have to cross that bridge. Six, eight months later, um, I ended up getting uh, a call and the interview process started. And what started out as something that couldn't be any further from uh, my, my roadmap became something that I, I saw as one of the biggest opportunities to impact the largest amount of people that I could. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to come in and uh, leave what I was doing um, and serve my country in a way that otherwise I might not ever have the opportunity to, um, a program that's funded out of the White House. Um, we work out of the chief technology <clears throat> officers uh, program 
And most um, people don't even know that the United States has a chief technology officer, mm-hmm. um, but he's uh, Todd Park and somebody that has had a huge impact on bringing entrepreneurial people into government. And he set this program up a couple of years ago, and it's really about bringing entrepreneurs into government to try and do something that otherwise wouldn't happen um, if, if we weren't here. And I think that speaks to his vision for a new government um, that really understands how to how to think about technology and how to build products and, and services um, and facilitate the, the building of those products and services with the private sector to develop um, things that you know government has uh, never really been able to do yet. Interesting. So, so essentially they're bringing, like, for example, you're coming in to look at healthcare, but I would imagine that there's a guy coming in to look at transportation or all these different sectors with all, you know, some kind of background and expertise that allows them to leverage technology into kind of something that's a very bricks and mortar bureaucratic, you know, kind of broken governmental engine. That's exactly right. So on one end of the spectrum of the projects, there's a there's a project that some really talented fellows are working on, and it's really to imagine a new way that small businesses can get government contracts. So today, mm-hmm. that process, for those of you who've ever done it, is apparently terrible and takes months of mm-hmm. paperwork. And for small businesses, this is a huge investment. It's not very efficient. It takes the, you know, it's huge government spending um, on some of these inefficiencies. And so they're coming in to not only reimagine a new process, but actually build the technology. And that's something that I think um, could potentially happen inside of government traditionally, but it's going to be accelerated with new horsepower uh, within six months uh, with some of these fellows that are working on mm-hmm. it. And you know, another group is working within the Smithsonian to digitize the, all the Smithsonian uh, artifacts. Right. Wow. And these are bones and, <clears throat> and you know, dinosaur remnants. How do you actually digitize millions of artifacts scalably? So they're actually building some crowdsourcing technology to be able to do that. Oh, wow. So that it, the idea with that is it's a new way of digital preservation so that you could use a 3D printer to print out uh, a facsimile of, of this? Should it degenerate or something like that? Or I think- Like you know, for a dinosaur bone or something like that, 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 that code is on file, so you have that form. That, that's right. And I think so much of the work that needs to get done is, ta- is the tagging structure for each one of these. And to think about that being done by hand is probably a task that could never be done. So right. they're really trying to build, I think, technology to automate some of that. But then to use the power of the crowd so that anybody could log in to their computer and actually contribute to, uh, to this. Oh, so that's, that's amazing. It's a very you know, web 2.0 approach to a problem that government might not have ever come up with. Mm-hmm. And that's really the value. Well, of the and also program. they don't, what is their incentive to get involved with it? They're not going to make money. You know, they're just going to spend money and there's no, there's no public demand for it. That's so right. So it's never going to happen. That's right. And it hasn't happened yet. So hopefully um, over the next you know, year with some of the fellows working on that project, some of those things will come come to bear that otherwise we never uh, see mm-hmm. the light of day. So how many f- of these fellows are there? There's 43 of us. Uh-huh. And some of us are working on six-month projects and others are working on one-year projects. Mine happens to be a one-year project. Uh, I think people recognize that healthcare is as entrepreneurial as we can be. I think there's just the beast um, yeah. healthcare is that's <laughs> like- going to... Do they bring you come in and they put you in a room and they go, listen, this is not, <laughs> nothing's happening overnight here. <laughs> that's essentially a year. Goes. That's like a day. Yeah. You know? All right, cool. So, you know, the white house calls says, come on down. I mean, you're going to say yes to that. You know, of course, like that doesn't happen every day. So it was a hard one to, uh, to imagine saying no to. Um, I looked at my wife when I got the call, I said, 
you're not going to believe this, but I got it. And without hesitation, she said, this is something you have to do. And, you know, it's really coming on the heels of, of her getting some momentum down in L.A. So it was a really tough decision for me whether, you know, it would be OK to to be bi-coastal for a year. And I think she mm-hmm. made it very clear to me um, and confirmed a feeling that I already had that this was really a once in a lifetime opportunity. And that with her support and that with uh, the relationship that we have, um, th- this was not only the right thing to do, but uh, something that I had to do. Right. Cool. And for the first time, I think. I'm in a role that doesn't feel like a job at all. It's really a mission. And, um, you know, the opportunity to have this window of time to focus exclusively on one problem um, is a unique one. I don't know if I'll ever get Mm -hmm. that back. And so, you know, I have a lot of pressure um, that's self-imposed about not letting the team down and not letting our country down around making the best of this 12 months. Right. And uh, no small feat. I mean, healthcare is a disaster. It's all anyone wants to talk about, Obamacare and all of this. And irrespective of your you know, political proclivities, we can all agree that our healthcare system is in dire need of you know, a, a reboot, uh, <laughs> Web 2.0 style, I suppose. So, so you show up, you've been here three months. What's the problem? I mean, drill down for me, what's wrong with healthcare? what's broken, and how are we going to get on the path to fixing this? So part of the big problem in healthcare is, goes back to those data silos that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago, that you know, healthcare records from one entity won't ever get merged with another healthcare experience that I have. And uh, the amount of proprietary data silos out there is literally um, uh, handicapping our, our system to the nth degree. And so the project that we're really focused on is a project called Blue Button. And Blue Button is really about empowering individuals with access to their own healthcare records in a digital format. Mm -hmm. So the idea that everybody in the country, uh, no matter who you are, should have access to whatever healthcare records exist about you And those should be in a format that can allow you to take those records out of whatever system they exist in and move them into whatever system you want as Mm -hmm. the consumer. And this is a big idea for a couple of reasons. Healthcare traditionally has been very top-down in terms of how patients have interacted with the healthcare system. And doctors traditionally know best in in the way that uh, healthcare has been. And for the first time, empowering people with their own records is basically saying, doctor might know best about a certain treatment, but they're going to be asked certain questions now that they've never been asked before because we're empowering patients with access to their own records in a very transparent way that can enable them to really be an equal part of the healthcare team. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that when you empower individuals with their own health records, they not only take more uh, of an ownership over their outcomes, but their outcomes actually are better and enhanced. Um, and improved. How did they figure that out? They have done uh, some really uh, innovative studies out there have done exactly that. They've, you know, they've opened up these records and shared doctor's notes and things that traditionally have been, you know, behind closed walls or just um, for the health team, not the, not the, uh, the patient. And they've run controlled studies actually that show when you involve patients at that level and share the data about them uh, with them and actually give them the data as if it was their own, because it is, um, that this, this happens and they become much more engaged. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole movement right now around the engaged patient. And it's, it starts from access to their own healthcare records. Access is not alone. Access alone is not going to change outcomes. Access needs to really be inside of a system that can make those data actionable. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're focused on is working with both public and private uh, institutions. So with, you know, CMS and Medicare and outside uh, federal agencies, um, you know, whether it's payers and providers to get on board with this philosophy and then use a structured way to, uh, to format the data so that it can be interoperable across mm-hmm. systems. So now I can take my uh, claims information from, say, United, merge it with my healthcare record from Mayo Clinic, and let developers, let entrepreneurs build services to mash those things up and create a way to actually make that stuff engaging so can, like better. Right, right, right. And allow them to communicate between each other better. That's right. Uh-huh. And so the Blue Button <clears throat> project that I'm working on is really about accelerating the adoption of this philosophy and technology blueprint. Well, it seems so elementary to just sort of empower the patient to have access to these records and allow that person to make a choice about who they want to share it with. I mean, is there resistance to this? I mean, what are you coming up against? Like, what do you, like, I want to peel back the layers here and like, you know, where, where, where is it truly broken? You know, where are the points where you're coming up against these seemingly impossible obstacles? So a lot of healthcare institutions out there feel that the, the data about their patients is their intellectual property. And they actually, in a lot of cases, want to, um, they want to protect their patients sometimes from their own data. And I think that's a that's bit of a- very paternalistic and condescending. It is. And when you talk to a lot of patients, that's how the healthcare industry has come across, is very condescending and paternalistic. And so- you know, that rich history, um, you know, starting from the ivory towers of medical school has filtered their way into these conversations. Um, and a lot of these organizations have been resistant to changing that. Now, with some of the changes and policy levers that uh, we have on our side, um, they're, they're changing slowly. But it doesn't mean that they're eager to just open up the data in a secure mm-hmm. way to allow the patients to move it within the system. That but, be- le- but legally, who does own those records? Isn't the patient doesn't? Isn't the pa- the patient does? The patient gets to make that call. That's right. Through HIPAA, um, it uh, it empowers people with legal right to their records mm-hmm. and in the format that uh, they they. Uh, they request. Um, so for the first time coming up this year, some modifications have been made to HIPAA to make this actually uh, real for patients mm-hmm. and they're going to start enforcing it. And I think, you know, there's a lot of progressive uh, data holders out there. So providers could be providing all sorts of services, whether it's traditional healthcare, could be uh, lab. So like, you know, organizations like Quest or LabCorp, uh, Walgreens, CVS, they're providers of certain services that have health data about, about them. Some of those more direct-to-consumer uh, organizations have been uh, more uh, progressive in their thinking because mm-hmm. they see some of the business opportunities behind it, and uh, there's a lot of new uh, new developments in that area. So, you know, we're we're working as fast as we can over this year to really put some pilots together to sh- to demonstrate to the community that might be more resistant. Hey, this is not only the right thing to do; it actually can impact your bottom line. Again, going back to the ATM analogy. If Wells Fargo 15, 20 years ago decided not to get on board with this interoperable system, you could stick your credit, your ATM card into any bank but Wells Fargo, they'd be left out um, of the whole mm-hmm. loop. And that's a bit where I see things going. So it's going to take a while to get there. But um, Right. I mean, what have you learned about our healthcare system since you've been at the White House that 
you were surprised to find out or that somebody who's listening to this might not be aware of that maybe they should know? Like, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people give the government a hard time for putting certain laws in, into place. And, and the one thing now that I've gotten the chance to work side by side with some of the policymakers, truly understanding that they're, they want the, you know, the best for the American people and that their intentions are to do the right thing. Um, there's so many stakeholders at the table that sometimes it's hard to please everybody. And I think that the policymakers are doing their best, but with the rate of technology going where it is, it's hard for them to keep up. And so I think that we're going to start seeing more and more efforts outside of the policy that are going to impact healthcare more than any policy could. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing. I don't think we can rely on policy to make all the changes that we need to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be the coming together of those two things that ultimately change, you know, um, the best, whether it's payment reform or other things that can help make some of the things on the technology side um, more easily adaptable by these organizations. Right. I mean, it's got to change and it's got to change. I mean, it's just, you know, from a consumer perspective, just to simply engage the system, it's just, it's overwhelming. You know, it's completely Byzantine and archaic and frustrating beyond all measures and too expensive. And, you know, every, you check any box. Right? That's right. And I think for the first time, possibly in history, we don't have a choice anymore. It's gotten to the point where not only can we not afford to keep going down the path we are, but when you walk down the aisles of the supermarket, um, you look around both at the, the people you know walking next to you and the, the food on the, on the aisles, and you, you really fear for the future generations. Mm -hmm. And unless something starts happening today, um, it's only going to get worse. And you know we're seeing higher rates of heart disease and diabetes and obesity in... Uh, the younger generations now that um, it's going to take some some new thinking and some uh, new collaborations, I think, across the ecosystem, both traditional healthcare, consumer brands and and everybody in between to really make this happen. Right. So when you come in, I mean, the problem is so massive. How do you decide what you're going to focus on? I mean, are you trying to just do one thing and execute on that? Or are you looking at all different kinds of things and throwing darts and seeing what sticks? So I, we spent the first couple of weeks really understanding this landscape and trying to figure out what levers we could pull that would have the biggest impact. And we identified some very high value use cases that we wanted to be able to demonstrate, um, even in a very limited way, to be able to say, Look, if we can give uh, patients the ability to flag errors in their medical record and actually make those changes happen, that's a, a bit of a Trojan horse to a whole new level of engagement around getting patient-generated information back into the healthcare mm -hmm. record. So this idea that we're generating all kinds of health data about ourselves every day, our right. phones are probably collecting you know, terabytes of it all the time, um, that data could be useful in a certain context if it was actually made available in the right format with the right level of interpretation. But today, no data can go into the healthcare record that's patient-generated. So just by the act of making it possible for patients to amend an error, which exists, mm -hmm. um, we see that as a big Trojan horse to a much larger conversation. So if we can start chipping away at some of those use cases, we see a huge... Uh, uh, domino effect with where this can go because we only have a year. And so we don't want to spend a whole lot of our time working on things that won't ever happen. But we think if we can start with some of these really high value use cases in a very limited way, 
and, and do them with institutions that are very influential, mm -hmm. then we think that that's probably the right approach. Right, it's a great starting point. I mean, just simply, I mean, think about the idea that there's a piece of paper in a filing cabinet in, you know, my allergist office from 20 years ago. And then there's a different piece of paper in my dentist's office. And there's a different piece of paper in, you know, somebody's oncologist's office. Like, and none of those, you know, unless you root them out and find them, those those things exist in separate worlds and are collecting dust. You know, your medical record should be one fluid dynamic document where all there's one repository for all that information so that any healthcare professional that is treating you has the ability to look at everything and make a well-reasoned decision. Like there could have been something that came up in some appointment that you were at 15 years ago that could be determinative and something that you're struggling with now and how there's, there would be no way of knowing that. That's right. right. Very well said. We could use you on our team right now. I'm ready to go to the White House right now. <laughs> Give me the application. <laughs> Tell me what it's like to go to the White House every day. So it's, it's pretty sexy. So the, the project that I'm working on is actually based out of Health and Human Services. And so as one of the largest agencies in the government, mm -hmm. um, the, the team that I work with on a daily basis is actually not uh, inside so you're the not White going House. in the White House every day. I'm not so every day. We, we find our way there every <laughs> once in a while, and it's always uh -huh. a, even a treat for us. Um, we haven't met President Obama yet, although we've been told that we will, um, uh -huh. barring any you know, disaster that happens on that one day right. um, that can't be controlled. Knock on wood that that doesn't happen. Um, we haven't, uh, yeah, we haven't been inside the West Wing yet, but there's um, a number of buildings on the White House complex that we go to, uh, usually on a once a week basis, um, mm -hmm. that we uh, we meet with all the fellows to learn about what we're all working on. We present to each other. And oh, we that's present. cool. It's very cool. It's it's humbling, and I pinch myself pretty much on a daily basis that I'm getting a chance to work with such talented individuals. I come from pretty much everywhere in, in the country, um, and are all working on very different things. Mm -hmm. What are, what is name one of the sort of mind-blowing cool things that one of the other fellows is working on? I think... I put you on the spot. Yeah, no, this is great. I, so um, uh, there's a team, uh, Jeff and Sok Wu are two fellows that are working on cyber physical systems. And no one, trust me, you don't, don't feel bad about no, yeah. not knowing because no none of us knew what it was. And they didn't even really, I think, know what it was when they came in. It's essentially when you think of the Internet of Things. So everything now could be a connected experience. Um, almost anything you touch could have a sensor in it. Everything is, is wired. Um, but a lot of things aren't necessarily talking to each other. And so their project is really to figure out how and in what way things should talk to each other to maximize the way we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And that is a mind-blowing uh, project when you think about all the things that you could connect to each other to have some sort of impact on the world. That could be manufacturing so that computers are more optimized. Um, that could be in healthcare, you know, so that medical devices are actually connected to other things that could trigger you know, alerts that otherwise would never happen. Mm -hmm. And then what's interesting is when you think about connected devices within these silo, you know, within these verticals, whether it's healthcare, transportation, manufacturing, what happens when they're all connected? Mm -hmm. So all those industries can actually talk to one another. Right. It's sort of like looking at our society as a living, breathing organism and and the internet is sort of the circulatory system, but how do you sort of enhance the nervous system? That's right. Mm -hmm. It's That's pretty cool. Mind blowing. And you know, these are engineers with, with years of experience working uh, at, at levels far beyond my comprehension to figure this one out. Um, and I think, you know, that's an example of a project that obviously isn't going to end 
at the, the end of their right. term That's here. That's not a one-year deal. That's definitely not a one-year <laughs> deal. And so for them to be able to put a ball in motion that could you know, hopefully jumpstart some momentum uh, that could really, I think, chart a path for how our world could be connected to really improve our lives um, is a really powerful project. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So where's this all going? Well, I'm trying my best not to think about what next year looks like because uh-huh. I have too much uh, to focus on to try and impact my project so that at the end of my year, not only do I give something for President Obama to talk about, um, but that I feel good that I put everything I possibly could in trying to, to um, improve uh, patients' lives and, and uh, our society from a healthcare standpoint and the best of my ability. So I'm basically looking you know, two months out um, every two months. I kind of reset expectations for myself and I'm leaving all my options open for next year. I haven't uh, determined what next year is going to look like at all, but um, I know that it's going to involve um, trying to do things that no one's really ever tried to do before to really enhance people's lives. And cool. um, I think health, wellness, um, from a consumer perspective is something that's dear to my heart and something that I think we haven't even scratched the surface surface of. So I think I'll be spending a lot of my time next year, uh, hopefully with some new ventures in that, in that space. Right. Cool. And if you were to look back five years from now on the state of our healthcare system, what do you think we can accomplish and what would you like to see in terms of change? I'd like to see payment reform so that, um, we are paying health systems for outcomes um, rather than procedures and treating that with a team-based approach that could be modeled after a lot of the work that's being done at Mayo. That's right. And I think that sets the foundation for the incentives to be aligned across the industry where we can now think about interoperable data in a new way and what it means for organizations' business models to share information in in a new transparent way. And I think whether it's through Project Blue Button or other initiatives that are actually making that data interoperability happen, that's a very powerful thing. So I think if, if I could have wished for two things and look back on in five years, I'd love to see both of those things happen. And then have, have the unintended consequence be more um, transparency in the system that empowers consumers to, to really take ownership over their own health like they've never had an opportunity in the past to do so. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That would be my wish. I like that. Yeah, and we got to figure out a way to get you involved in it too. I'd, I'd love to, man. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. No, cool, man. Well, uh, that's. I think it's a great place to end it. That's inspiring, man. I appreciate uh, that you're that you're here doing that. We need you, and uh, it's great work, man. Well, thank you, Rich. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be on the podcast yeah. and to uh, to be able to meet you in person finally and no, to hear cool, your man. story this the, week too. The feeling is mutual, man. I'm I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and we need more guys like you, not just in the White House, but in healthcare, in health and wellness, and we need more technology disruptors to come in and figure out how we can reconfigure how we're doing things because the way we're doing them is not sustainable and not heading us in a great direction. So, thank you. Well, thank you. All right, man. All good? All good, yeah. So uh, if people want to check you out and follow your journey and learn a little bit more about what you're doing, you're on Twitter. It's I'm on Twitter. At Adam Dole. Yep, all one word, Adam Dole. And um, yeah, follow me there. I talk about a lot of these things and uh, love to uh, engage the, the community around it. Cool, man. Is there any kind of website for the program that you're doing at the White House or is there any kind of consumer information about that? 
There is. There's um, healthit.gov slash blue button is focused on the project that I'm working on. They don't make it. That's the first thing you have to disrupt. Who's going to remember that? <laughs> I know. Come we, on. We're, we're Come push, up with like. We're pushing for blue button. <laughs> you, need, you need a new URL for that <laughs> right away. That's one, one of the projects. Wait, on. say that again. What was it? <laughs> Health, healthit.gov backslash blue button. Okay, that's not too bad. Not too but, bad, but we're working on that. We're, right. We've got a couple in the works, but we haven't secured the URL quite yet. Um, and uh, and then if you want to look up the Presidential Innovation Fellows, it's right on the White House blog. Um, you can check us out there. And they're actually going to be accepting applications for the third class uh, this, oh, nice. uh, this winter. So, cool. yeah, we need more disruptors in healthcare. All right. Well, all right, everybody, get out. You start applying. That's Everybody's right. listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. All right, man. Well, uh, Thanks for your time. Thanks, Rich. All right. Peace. Plants. Yeah.